0: It's the Tars. Fans, and welcome to the Toncast. This is a very special global pandemic episode that we're doing. I am, of course, your host. Paul Francis Sullivan, please call me Sully. On today's episode, we talk about, oh, I don't know, how everything in the world is bananas. Nothing is the same. And we pop in films like Children of Men and 12 Monkeys to cheer ourselves up and say, oh, I wish we had it as good as those people. Remember that? We're blowing each other's brains out and the last babies have been born. And oh, Clive Owen has a bullet in his belly. Spoiler alert everything's sad. Except not as sad as when I go outside and say, Hey, how's life? The most horrifying question to ask any soul is, How you doing? As they're going to see if they're rummaging through their garage to find that dog-eared copy of Noose Making for Dummies. But in this time of pain of frustration, of anger, of, oh, what the hell, I'll make it an extra large with extra nacho cheese. I'm not going to make it till tomorrow. Life expectancy, three, two, one, now. No better person to talk about life in these glorious times than someone who has appeared all over your television, whether he's selling stuff or he's selling stuff, or doing an under five or sometimes an over five sometimes working overtime, but always on television to make you say, wait a minute, I've seen that guy before. It's one of the most talented people that I'm going to talk to in the next hour. Easily top 10. It's Todd Robert Anderson, my special guest. How are you,
1: Todd? I'm good, Sully. Sully. Thanks for having me on your show. It's funny because uh, well, I, I knew you back in, in college, and uh, I just called yeah. you Paul, but I'm to call you Sully now.
0: You, can, you know what? The world's ending before people are done downloading this episode, so you could call me whatever you want. I could be that. You can oh, call thanks. me Ray. You can call me Jay, douchebag, and I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, I, I tend to say in some of my own podcasts that I do, like uh, Locked On MLB or Bull Durham Minute, I tend to say uh, my name is Paul Francis Sullivan. You can call me Sully, as a way to diffuse the fact that I'm one of those assholes who uses three names. But the reason I use three names, Paul Francis Sullivan, those are the three that I use, uh, is because there <laughs> is a base, there is a baseball writer named Paul Sullivan who is who writes mm-hmm. about the Cubs and the White Sox for the Chicago Tribune. And when I used to just have my baseball blog, I would type some stuff up, and I would and the byline would say, by Paul Sullivan. And I would have people write to me and say, like, oh, you wrote this thing about the White Sox on your blog, but you wrote the completely different point of view on the Chicago Tribune. So which one is it, asshole? And then I realized, <laughs> yes, there's another Paul Sullivan. So I to mm. differentiate myself, I had two choices. I wasn't going to go by Paul F. Sullivan, but then that's too much like Paul F. Tompkins, and he already has that. So there was two things I could do. I could go by Paul Francis Sullivan, or I can go by Paulie Sullivan. Now Paulie Oh,
1: Paulie. Sullivan,
0: yeah, well, that sounds like I'm picking something up at the dock and leaving. <laughs> I, I, I'm... I, I'm uh, I uh, uh, I took care of that thing for you. So, you know, I'm going to the Bada Bing and I'm taking care of something. So I just I'm not a Polly. Paulie. Paulie just sounds like some Joe. Paulie, yeah, Paulie will take care of that. Don't ask questions. He'll just give you the money. Paulie is reliable. He earns. Paulie earns. Um, so I went by Paul Francis Sullivan, which sounded pretentious. So I added the coda, "Call me Sully," as a sort of way to diffuse it. But you you knew me... I mean, some people called me Sully in college, but I guess most people call me Paul because we were in an asshole uh, arts college, and therefore a name like Sully is too familiar. You had to be a serious artist as we're wearing uh, dark turtlenecks and and discussing the, the works of Ozu and Boonwell.
1: I mean, I would have totally called you Sully uh, in uh, fr- freshman year in college. Uh, I, You know, I think... For me, it wasn't that I was at a pretentious art school. It was, it was just that you know you introduced yourself as Paul uh, uh, Sullivan, and I didn't want to, you know, assume I could call you Sully because that's a classic nickname for anyone with the last name Sullivan, Sully, and it's a it's a fun one. I like the I like that nickname, Sully. Um, uh, but I called you Paul. It was just it was pure respect. It wasn't it wasn't pretentiousness. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that uh, you know I, uh, you knew that I respected you, so eventually we could make uh, weird videos uh, pretending we're the Kool Aid oh, yeah. Man in your uh, dormitory room, which was important. Yes, to me.
0: And, and 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 that took trust. I think that I think that video we needed a safe word.
1: Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Should we explain? It's really hard to explain. It is one of those things you kind of have to see, but uh, so so your listeners understand we were we were I don't think we were on anything of any kind when we made these videos. I don't we drink were, or use
0: any drugs. We were, I was sober. I was I was sober.
1: All right, yeah. so you were sober, and I was, even though I freely uh, used all kinds of substances, I think at that time I was completely uh, sober. So it's funny that we made these videos where uh, we would we would yell out, someone would yell out, hey, Kool-Aid, and then another person would mm-hmm. bust through the door, say, crash-a-bang-a-boom-a-bang-a, as I recall. That yeah. was the phrase that yes. we used. And then... Yes something bizarre would happen after that for instance in one version I remember we had a uh, uh, sweatshirt sleeves hanging through uh, our open uh, flies in our pants yes and then we simulated masturbation with those uh, sweatshirt sleeves I this might now in most colleges count as some kind of sex crime uh, but at the time I remember uh we were all laughing hysterically. You, me, and and and, and your roommate John uh, John Ward, were all v- laughing very hard at this nonsense.
0: Well, yeah, and, and that, at the time it was just a sex misdemeanor, but now it would certainly be a sex <laughs> crime. Uh, I I also remember <laughs> that we did a thing where we were pretending to uh, the the a, a common thread is to uh, a, we were a couple of. Kids, native New Englanders, pretending to masturbate, pretending to masturbate on camera, and uh, once, w- once we did it to the uh, "Gonna Fly Now" the Rocky theme, uh, of which we both also simulate, we both also simulated tearing our own penises off in the process. That we got too into it, that we ripped off our johnsons, um, and I also remember one of the Hey Kool Aid videos. Of which I was the Kool-Aid man. And instead of saying, hey, Kool-Aid, you said, hey, Clamato. <laughs> which, for those uh, of you who don't know what because- Clamato is, Clamato cl- <laughs> is a tomato and clam juice concoction uh, probably used for Bloody Marys.
1: Yeah, and there was a guy in, in one of a- my classes... This guy in my class would drink Clamato all the time. That was he had it every day. It was it was his thing. So uh, yeah, that's I brought that back to our freshman dorm with me, and, and then it became yeah. part of the the magic.
0: Yeah, magic is a strong word, but um. <laughs> 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 okay, I. I I appeared on a Toncast a few years ago, but uh, I don't know if I'm repeating a story or not. So for fans of the diehard fans of the p- podcast, uh, uh, when I had you as a guest on a few years ago, uh, if I'm repeating something, please, please do forgive me. But I'm going to quiz you that we used to just make a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, videos and and super eight films and photographic slide stories. And you happen to live in the same dorm as me and and as John Ward and you were a very good actor and notice I said that uh, I probably shouldn't put that in the past tense but uh no I've gotten
1: much worse I've gotten much worse it's, uh, it's really bad but
0: uh, it's really bad. the thing that was great about working with you in videos is that there was a certain fearlessness about you that you just wanted to try however weird we got you were going to go there and obviously not everything we tried worked but it was never because we didn't absolutely do a cannonball from the high diving board and there was a real energy to being 18 19 years old living in Greenwich village having these really cheap breaking down film cameras that were shooting uh, Super 8 film, which was I found so much more beautiful than video because video, especially mm. video in the early 90s it, it wasn't high definition it wasn't even definition it was just, you know, it was <laughs> decaying it, it would decay after one viewing, but the the way that Super 8 film looked the graininess of it, the richness of it just looked so great, and just shooting weird stuff um and, and knowing that if John or I or whomever it was had a wackadoodle doodle idea, that you would be like, okay, let's do it. Let's try it. Let's give it a whirl. And the, the there's a certain fearlessness of the creativity that was, uh, if we fail, it's okay, because when we hit, it will be great. And it, the fearlessness will be there when we succeed and when we fail. And we also at that time and i'm not going to be old man sully here but there's an element to the creativity that i miss from then that i think is is harder to find now which is there was never an expectation that people were necessarily going to see some of this we didn't do jacking off to the rocky theme and tearing our dicks off and saying i wonder how many <laughs> views this is going to get on youtube you know that was just no. us we were just being horses asses in the dorm room (laughs) but like when we were we did stuff where it was like you know you that was kind of a an in joke of how many films that John and I shot that could have been titled Todd Walks uh, because it was just <laughs> filming you walking here or walking there or, or jumping up or getting beaten up or, or beating me up or I beat you up or you jump up in the air and cut to something else. All this weird this guy eats a dog in one scene this guy jumps into a, a car in the other. Um, but in the end it we never did any of those films thinking oh how many people are going to see this because it was the equivalent of your journal it was the equivalent of practicing the piano or the guitar how do you learn how to to film things and describe things visually tell stories without dialogue and without a sense of how many views is this going to get no, this right. is you learning how to use the instrument and eventually you you, know, you shot something that you hope would make it to a film festival and I've had a bunch of my short videos and films make it to film festivals, but I don't show the people I did stuff I did in film school because that was me learning how to use do the goddamn thing. And right. I think that there's almost too much of, hey, I shot this and now it's for public consumption. And I think there should be more of, hey, I shot this, and that's me learning how to do this. I mean, imagine putting the first time you pick up an instrument on SoundCloud. Here I am with a tuba. (laughs) (laughs) How many listens did that get? You know? Oh, man, why is this not trending? (laughs) 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 And so... You know, I, you and I were very good friends in in college, and and you and I and John and we all did. We were all in each other's videos too. Like I acted and stuff, and you. But like it was always refreshing to have to give it to you because he was like, okay, you're gonna pretend to throw up. Great. Just let me hold on. Let me get some oatmeal in my mouth. <laughs> and. Yeah, Something Todd Robert Anderson never said at an NYU shoot was, "Why are we doing this?" You ne- those words never <laughs> yeah. came out of your mouth in that order. It's like, "Oh, okay, uh, John Ward is dressed as death, and Todd's gonna vomit or something," you know, and and uh, and that was just fun. There are,
1: and and there are more uh, NYU shorts than I can count in which I was lying on a New York sidewalk. <laughs> And yep. Inevitably, I would be lying in the sidewalk, and at a certain point, i go, yeah, you guys, it smells like piss around here. <laughs> like, everywhere I lay, and, and, it smelled like urine. It's, fu-
0: it's funny. Do you know why? <laughs> yeah.
1: Do you know why it, is, it smelled like piss? Just, yeah, someone just pissed there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> Solve that I
1: mystery. Don't <laughs> I don't know that there was a place that you could lie down on the street in New York. Where it wouldn't smell yeah. like piss I mean it's certainly not my and anecdotal experience Was there a place that didn't smell like urine If your face was right next to the ground
0: And to put things in perspective This was uh, 91, 1990, 91, 92. This is before a lot of New York Started getting quote Cleaned up Unquote I mean there was still There was When we got there It was kind of the end of And I'm actually very glad we lived there At this point that we kind of saw the ending of that sort of rough around the edges kind of punk rocky like some parts being really dangerous like Tompkins Square Park or St. Mark's Place being really sort of this this Venn diagram of insanity and places like Kim's video and 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 you know the the CBGB's still existed all these places that you read about if you followed Talking Heads or the Ramones or Blondie or all these, that's Lou Reed and all that and Soho was still felt a little bit like After Hours and Little Italy still kind of felt like Mean Street. so I mean it's all so gentrified now, I think CBGB's now is a Walgreens you know, sure or something crazy like I'm sure that. <laughs> the, uh, and I'm I, glad it's funny that you say that, that about that we
1: ex- so, I was just gonna say uh, it, it's funny that you say that about Soho because one of the last I haven't been to New York City in years and years and years, but I did book a job and I hadn't been there for years and you know they have to put you up in a hotel obviously, but it has to be a good hotel because the union rules blah blah blah. So I get there and they're like, yeah, we're taking you to, you're staying in Soho. And I hadn't been there since it had been developed in that way. And I was like, Soho? Where am I gonna stay, at the Red Stripe? Or am I gonna stay in the (laughs) Fortune Cookie Factory next to the Red Stripe? Where the hell do you stay in Soho? Did you rent an artist's loft? So then when I got there and it was nothing but cafes and bars and shops, I was so confused. We really were there at the end of an era of of Manhattan and New York at large. I would say,
0: yeah, and and you know, and and look at everyone is always going to look at the era that they lived in New York as the ideal one because there were people bitching and moaning about New York. Well, back in my day, it was this and this and this, and I bet everyone, even if you went back to Peter Stuyvesant, there were people. Back in my days, there were. Fever trappers here, and that's when New York was really New York. And so, people are always going to, you know, <laughs> you know, romanticize, and and you and I just wound up doing that right now. But uh, there was so much, like for me, one of the I always wanted to live in New York. When I was growing up in uh, Massachusetts, and then later we moved to California. It was my absolute mission to get to New York. I was in love with New York the times that I used to visit it. And I used to, as a kid, I used to draw the skyline. I just was so fascinated. And of course, the first two things I drew were the World Trade Center. But um, I wanted right. to live in New York. And one of the things that drove me to New York was I was a big Woody Allen fan. I know we're not supposed to like him anymore, but I grew up a huge Woody Allen fan uh, and Scorsese and, and everything. But also I was a rabid David Letterman fan. I watched David Letterman mm-hmm. all the time, and he used to go out to the streets of New York with his camera crew, and New York became kind of a character for the show, like the, the little weird places that he would send his camera crews to and everything, and I just, that was the New York of the 80s and the early 90s, that I wanted to experience that, and uh, so I got to live, when it was there, at least long enough. To to say like yeah I, I got to experience that 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 was that was a real place for me and you know I'm sure it's still great I'm sure if I you know I just I do people ever ask you that like do you want to move back to New York do people ever ask you which do you like better New York or Los Angeles which is one of the five most boring uh, questions to ask yeah people, it, human being.
1: that that yeah occasionally I mean I don't hear that much anymore because I've been in L A for so long but my my whole thing about New York. It's funny to just to touch on that romanticizing uh, thing. It's funny that we romanticize this era because you mentioned Scorsese and Allen, and, and their New Yorks. Uh, but another New York before I was exposed to actual New York uh, was through the works of Frank Henenlotter, uh, who made you know Basket Case and Brain Damage and and stuff like that. And then you know and then trauma movies to a degree, um, the, seeing this like gritty uh, New York, and Hen and Lauder's movies were so low budget that he wasn't covering anything up. He was just using you know, Times Square at the time as the backdrop for his sleazy movies. So it, the, like I feel like if you watch those movies from the 80s and even the 70s, you kind of see the New York that we knew that ended pretty much after we left. Um, and it's weird to to miss, like, a sleazy version of a place, but that's, yeah. that's the New York that I, I sort of miss. But New York itself, like, but I was there for five years, and by the end of the five years, I just wanted to get out. Because after getting out of college and living there out of college... I, the, the city became so claustrophobic for me because, I, you know, I had no money to do anything. It was basically go to my shitty one room shack in the back of an alleyway in Astoria, Queens, take the subway to a shitty job inside of a windowless room, you know, where I was doing data entry eight hours a day, you know, uh, just so I could get on the subway and go back to Queens is just it, like by the end of that period I was just itching to get out and wide open spaces is what I needed so I don't I don't ever want to I would, I would like to go back and visit my son really wants to see New York so I would certainly go back as a, as a tourist but I wouldn't want to live there anymore it's too, uh, too cramped for me
0: I lived there until 05 I stayed in New York and in fact my kids were born in New York my, my two boys were born in New York City uh, but we moved to California shortly after they were born because all of my family and all of uh, my wife's family, they all live in Northern California. So it made sense to to mm-hmm. move out in New York. Uh, if we only had one kid, we probably would still be living there., yeah, but going from no kids to twins, um, yeah I get the question is it harder to, you know, Is it harder having one kid or two? And my answer is always how would I know? And but um, I, I'll tell you that i I lived in New York and I did a lot of stand-up comedy in New York, and I loved doing stand-up in New York. I loved the comedy scene there. I got my first big breaks in television in New York. I you know my my producing job on The Daily Show and a couple other shows that I worked on that were pretty high profile uh, i I just loved it, but I, You know, even listen to me right now, what nostalgia does and gets you to say such stupid stuff like, oh, I like Times Square when it was filled with robberies and drug use and hookers and crack. Yeah, oh, those were the days, <laughs> as opposed to now where you can walk around safely and not get hit by a car and take your kids. And, you know, I mean, what, what, the stupidity of nostalgia that we have just because we saw Death Wish and we said, oh wouldn't it be cool to live there like you, I don't think you got the point of Death Wish <laughs> if you're watching it like you're like oh what a nostalgic view of the west side of Manhattan um, I, I, I did I used to love going to the Lower East Side to do stand up because there were so many of these totally bananas pockets of like these these little hole in the wall black box theaters that you could go do stand-up comedy, and some of the comedy places, they wanted you to do weird shit. They wanted you to uh, experiment and try things, and 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 uh, some of it to a fault. I think there was a little too much emphasis on being weird and not enough emphasis on being funny, but that oh. being said, it was just a tremendous amount of fun to be down there at that time, and... Where people's mindset was not necessarily how is this going to translate to me getting a job on television, and more of how do we just get this show off the ground? And there were we had shows that were just that were wackadoodle, and and because I was a, a video maker, and I used to do stuff like we would do comedy shows where we would have monitors, and we would have tapes that we'd have to play we'd have to start, you know, to sync them up before the audience came in. So that the, like, now everything could be done on the you know, on laptops and just start this thing and that thing. But you couldn't do that then. So you had to have these VCRs that were playing the whole show and there would be black on the screen until the thing needs to pop up. And so you had to do these wild things to time things out and mm-hmm. to time out, like, like uh, there was a two guys we did a lot of shows with, and one of them has become, um, Patrick Gallo has been in a lot of stuff, he was just in The Irishman, and um, a couple other high profile films, um, but he was a comedian at the time, and and so we had like times when he would walk in, he would start doing a scene, and the television would pop up, and he's on the television, so he does a scene with himself, and so like we were uh-huh. doing this in like night in 99 and 2000 where the technology was you put a VHS tape in and you pop that in or there was one point where um, like, we shot something and then the the people on the video turned to the camera and say does anybody have a suggestion for something this video should go on and then we would have one plant in the audience or someone would yell do a sketch about Amway and they say okay and then they pull out Amway products on the video so it's like this weird like stuff that we would do that was pretty funny. Some of it was out there, and the technology was borderline Neanderthal to do some of the stuff. But because uh-huh. I had a video make, I had a video making background, so I used to do stuff with these comics who really wanted to make videos. But I had equipment and I had editing software in '98, '99. Now everybody does. But I was a rarity in 99 to have um, a Final Cut on my computer. And so not only was I do, would I do stuff like improv videos with comics that would then show up in film festivals, and that ultimately got my, my Daily Show job, but also I made good money editing people's reels because people have all these, ah. these tapes of these sets that they had, and if they went to someone else to edit them, these people didn't understand where the punchline they would have people they cut out the punchline or they just they cut out the setup. <laughs> and so right, I right. knew the, I knew how to edit, but I also knew what a stand-up set was. So people would get these right. reels and like they cut out the laugh or they cut out the tag or they cut out the this. And I would I would you know I would do that. And I also because I had multiple cameras I would like people would have their plays, and I would set up like three cameras in a theater and record their play and edit it together, as opposed to having one camera at the back of the theater where everyone looks like a Keith Haring drawing—you can't see their faces, and you know everything's <laughs> washed out—and and, and mm-hmm. I would have a three-camera shoot, and it wasn't it wasn't ideal. But at least they had a record of their play where you can see the actors' performances. You can see right. up a wide shot. And if someone entered, we saw the person enter. Um, and then we edited it together. And that was that was fun. Especially at the time, that was unique. Now, everyone, if you have an iPhone, you have all the equipment right. that I had in at, at 1999. But in 1999, it was kind of novel. And that's kind of where I got... Because of that, I did good videos, and that's what led to a television career, because it, the idea of making videos was kind of novel at, in the late 90s. Right. And, uh, and um, as I said, now everyone does it, and there would be nothing special about what I did, but uh, uh, it, was, it was cool.
1: <laughs> that is cool. And
0: I think a lot of the training ground of that was running around New York with you and John Ward and learning how to set up shots and learning what's funny and what's not. I mean, I think that there's a direct correlation between what I did at the beginning of the 90s and me getting jobs at television at the end of the 90s. I was doing eerily similar stuff, except I was much better at it. I showed people the stuff after I'd made crap for five or six years. Then I started showing people what I could do. If I showed people us jerking off to Clamato in Judson Hall, I'm not getting a (laughs) Daily Show job.
1: I mean, you would for me. That's totally that's my genre, uh, jacking off with clamato in in dorm rooms. That's my thing. Uh, But yeah, The Daily Show is a little more hoity-toity, I guess, than than I am. I mean, but good for you.
0: Was that a a Pedro Almodovar film jacking off with clamato? I think that was. I think uh, (laughs) Penelope
1: Cruz. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wonder uh, if we had, you know, had the wherewithal to uh, do a Billy Eichner uh, type thing uh, back when we were running around streets with a camera. How we would have f- fared in that uh, era of New York City. Uh, running up to people and asking them questions aggressively. Do you think that it would have gone well back then? Uh, I mean, Billy Billy Eichner's a a specific talent with that, but I think if we had done that, even if we had been Billy Eichner good, we might have been stabbed.
0: Yes, I think we would have been stabbed, Uh, especially because we would have been doing it around Washington Square Park. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's tough to transpose something that worked in one era to another. Like, some things are always a, a product of the... I think everything's a product of its time. And so I think... First of all, we wouldn't have been... At the, the producers of those Billy Eichner things are very good. You could tell they're very well produced, oh. that they allow... They give him the bullpen to do that sort of work. I probably would have been good at it when I was working with people like Ed Helms and... Stephen Colbert. I'm name dropping a little bit, but that was the level of talent. The people, but some of the people, the comics I worked with leading up to that were also really talented and have become quite successful. Uh, back in ninety, ninety one, ninety two, uh, I, mm-hmm. I I didn't have the chop. I didn't have the chops. I I had raw ability. Ward had raw, raw ability. Eli Roth. All these people had raw ability, but they you needed. This is what people what people don't get about creativity sometimes i don't mean to get on a fucking soapbox here but it's my podcast you're a guest on my podcast
1: i'm not i'm not getting in the way of this at all you go ahead you get up on your box
0: it's the work to get good at it there's such a race to get something seen and to chase clicks and to see am I liking, am I getting this that, or the other thing, that you don't realize there is work that needs to be done and you're shooting yourself in the foot if you present yourself too early. It's like it's I true. did tons of stand-up comedy. The first two, first really first two years I did stand-up comedy, I sucked. Now, I sure. was a funny person. I had a good sense of humor. I could make people laugh, but the craft of getting on stage, and you did a little stand-up comedy as well. I, we went to go see yeah. you, do stand-up, but you, you I mean but you know that it's not just, "Hey, I make people laugh at the office. Ergo, I'm a good stand-up comic. That it takes a while just to get used to the actual process of it. It's the same thing with podcasting, same thing with video making, same thing with writing. Are you going to publish the first draft of the first book you write? No, you're going to wipe your ass with it because it's terrible. But you have (laughs) to write the bad stuff because eventually that's how you learn how to get good. It's the tuba analogy, and so I think that the the there aren't as many gatekeepers from here's my creative thing and now it's available to everybody there used to be a lot of right. gatekeepers now some of those some of that was unreasonable but some of that was there to vet people out and right i think that sometimes the the focus is too much on how many clicks how am i getting this without thinking am i getting good at this am i getting better am i being critical of myself I do a lot of podcast stuff. I now make some money podcasting. It took me five or six years of podcasting until someone started handing me a little rectangle of paper that I could bring to the bank to make my available balance bigger. It took years of me doing that. And I listened to my original podcast and they suck. But I got good at it because I kept (laughs) doing it. But I see these message boards like, Hey, I've been doing... A podcast for a month and a half now. How do my shows get viral? Which I guess is a bad expression in these times. But, like, (laughs) why are you thinking about marketing your podcast? You've been doing it for a month. Why don't you focus on it getting good? And making it so that when you present it, it's the difference between me doing the videos that I was doing with some of the comics in 1999 and 2000 that I think were really pretty funny... Comedic improv films, and that's what got me the Daily Show job, as opposed to me showing you jerking off to Clamato and saying, Hey, Jon Stewart, look at what I can do. Oh, it's not fair. Well, they didn't hire let's, me.
1: Let's not under underplay the importance of uh, jack off videos involving Clamato. That's true. First of all, I mean, I think and you're and being that, a little dismissive. Good money in that. Because. Art, and art is art is art, you know, art is art. Yeah. So you can't, you can't, you can't poo poo that, but I, I understand you, but you're basically saying it's a 10,000 hours to success situation, uh, that yeah. you are, that you are, that, that you are proof of. Um, and, uh, and like for me. You know, one of the things that I've noticed uh, on online and what's popular and what my teenage son picks up on and what he watches is a, lo- a lot of it is uh, influencers. So uh, I myself have, have uh, I've decided to become an influencer, and I have my influencer channel called Blursh on YouTube. And I don't think I'm a great influencer. I've only been influencing uh, for a year now. And I expect to be influencing for several more years before uh, I become an actually good influencer. One of the things that I need to do is learn how to show up, you know, at protests and get good photos of me looking like I'm involved before I get back into my car and go home and edit together and, and put up my influencer videos. But I I'm, you know that's part of the, the, the process of becoming a successful influencer. But I think well, that uh, what you're saying is, is true in that you, you look and that's what influencing is now. It's just someone yapping at a camera and holding up you know a, a box of juice or whatever and talking about whether or not they like juice. I mean,
0: it to me it's it it's focusing on the results of success instead of what creates the success and by that i mean it's the people who chase the clicks instead of trying to make it better i think sometimes right. the gatekeepers served a purpose when you if you act like oh i created this youtube video and i published it and therefore, I want to be treated the same as if I'm producing a television show. And while that may sound a little snobby on my part, and I'm not poo-pooing those who create YouTube videos, I think some people do some incredibly uh, worthwhile, entertaining, and terrific work there. Uh, and, and I think there's also a cesspool of garbage as well, as, is, as with most things. But what when the focus is... Like what are the clicks? What are the likes? Instead of what is the quality of it? That's when you're chasing the wrong thing. I've had people ask me how many, you know, like when they finally do a podcast, and the first question out of their mouth is, "How many downloads do you get?" And my answer is, "Why do you care?" And I mean, if right. and it's not like they're at. It's not like I'm talking to an advertiser. If I'm talking to an advertiser, yeah, I understand why. That that's 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 just reality, but just a conversation with Oh, you have a podcast. that does get a lot of downloads. And I said, and I'll always say, I don't know. I I don't know how many right. downloads cause I don't care. Right. And the look of confusion that people have, of, well, how are you not looking at your downloads every two minutes? Cause I don't care. It's not important right. to me. What's important to me is getting the show good. And I think right. that, you know when someone posted a thing on one of the message boards, the the, because I'm still on AOL, I go to message boards all the time and and uh, chat rooms. Uh, it was on one of those. It was some group online of uh, uh, where it's normally podcasters talking about some technical stuff, like hey, you know, has anyone tried this new program or why is an Audacity doing this? Blah 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 blah. And this one person said, uh, I've done nine episodes of my podcast what should i do now and i responded do a tenth right. and because nine I'll, I'll do eight a week i mean what, what, what congratulations <laughs> i did three sit-ups why don't i have a six-pack you know and, and and nobody else would you wouldn't think about that in anything else but because it's so easy to publish now there's a sense of, I uh, I don't like to say entitlement because that that has too much baggage in my opinion, but I I hate to say it sometimes the gatekeepers serve a purpose and they weed out people who it, it makes the accomplishment of the accomplishment of I wrote a book as opposed to mm-hmm. I printed out a book and bound it and oh that's the same thing as getting it published by you know by Viking Press or something. Or I made a – I right. produced something on television and uh, I shot a, uh, a YouTube video and equating those two. And I, right, I have right. trouble with that. Maybe we're the last generation to to have trouble with that. And maybe this is old man Sully. But uh, well, I, I do think to, do, fo- do, when you focus on – I'd say when you I, focus I, I, on – clicks likes and everything as opposed to being good i think that's the problem and that got us trump that's
1: that's not uh that's not untrue i mean i would i would say that uh the society of uh, uh filmed and videoed entertaining uh has has changed a lot and so much of what i see you know on casting calls and the breakdowns and and hey uh this is what we're looking for so often it comes down to how many twitter followers you have that get you in the door how many hits you have on your youtube channel it's 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 become so much about that and there there isn't a lot of room for old school people who just want to Make a good show. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, as far as I can tell, um, which is a bummer because uh, that kind of craftsmanship, I think, is—I uh, uh, miss it. There isn't as much of it out there anymore.
0: Now, I—I I, I do want to say something, and this does, this does kind of contradict what I said before. I do love that the doors are open. For people who would not normally have a chance to show their creativity, I do love that because right. in the the sea of quacking ducks, every once in a while you go like, "Oh wait a minute, that duck's doing something cool." Uh, and I'll give you I'll give you a weird example. There is a, a YouTuber. She's in her twenties. I don't remember her name, but she is this. Woman from this young woman from Tennessee who would never be on television in four quadrillion years. And she's rough around the edges, you know, she sounds like she's from the Smoky Mountains, and she watches movies and talks about them. There is not a television network in the world who would put this woman in front of a camera. And uh-huh. I find her to be hilarious. And she watches movies like she watched *Close Encounters of the Third Kind*, which is one in which she had never seen before. And that's always like, "I've never seen this movie. I heard about it. I'm gonna go watch it." And she's got this thick Tennessee voice. Her, you know, like, "Oh, I'm gonna give that boy a whip," and sort of like, you know, all this stuff, Smoky Mountain stuff. And she wound up loving Close Encounters. She got it. It's not this is not like a dumb, like, look at this dumb person. No, she got it. She loved what was so great about it. She got emotional, and she was drawn into it. And you watch her watching the film, and I'm transfixed because she's hysterical. And we would never have that if it wasn't for this channel. Or an even better example, I just remember that because I, I watched her video earlier today, and she just cracks me up. I have a buddy named Gar Reness, who, like me, we're both rabid baseball fans. And he has become kind of a YouTube star because he can absolutely mimic anybody's batting stance. You yell any player, and he will stand exactly the way he does and pose. <laughs> and if he has a little hitch in his swing, and he'll do it. And he does it with a left-handed, right-handed. And he started doing that on YouTube, and it got to the point where, like, teams – There's amazing videos of teams inviting him to, like, their clubhouse. And you see the actual players around him yelling out players for him to do. And he would do it, and the place (laughs) loses their mind. And he wound up going on Letterman. David Letterman had him as a guest, because Letterman is a rabid baseball fan. And Letterman's yelling players for him to do. And he would do it, and you hear Dave falling off the chair laughing because... You know, because Joe Morgan, when Joe Morgan would come back, he would, like, do, like, he had this thing look like a chicken wing as he you know as he was getting ready. But, of course, he's, like, you know, exaggerating it, like, to the point where it was, like, crazy. <laughs> but he has said that without YouTube, he's a funny guy at a barbecue. You know, at the bar, you're know, like, hey, yeah, uh, G- sure. you know, Gar, do your impersonation of Manny Ramirez. Oh, yeah, do Ah, that's so funny. Now he got to appear on Letterman. He had a book written. I mean, he... He's, he has a regular job. It's not like he's, you know, he has a, he doesn't make his career imitating Red Sox third baseman Kevin Euclid. But that sort of fame and, uh, and you know, and he's a, he's a really cool guy. We've become very good friends over the years. But that sort of, uh, that talent and that ability, which is hysterical to watch, especially for baseball fans like me, would have never have been seen. If no. not for, if not for this easy access, so in a way I do love it when it works. What I, yeah. the, the the downside of it is when people focus on the wrong thing. He focused on making his impersonations perfect. The girl in Tennessee focused on making her reviews funny, and right. and it turned out to be great. I don't and and now she has a little following and everything like that. I focus on my podcast. To make my baseball discussion fast, funny, and not sort of jock, sort of you know, the sort of the misogyny that you hear all in
1: ESPN and all this shit. Mm. And
0: when it works, it's great. So I guess I, I guess there's two two sides to the coin.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I you mentioned publishing before, and I've I've self published a couple books, and I'm gearing up to self publish a third one. Um, and the reason why I self-publish is, and I don't do it very often. It takes me years and years to to put together something that I feel like somebody else could read, who I don't necessarily know. Um, uh, but I there's there's no I could not figure out a way to get my foot in the door of uh, of publishing. And the fact is, is it, it was it was hard enough to get my foot in the door as a, as an actor and to to go through. <laughs> What, I, don't, I don't even know how I did it, to be honest. So I don't know how you break into to publishing without some kind of actual connection uh, to a powerful person. Uh, so, but it's nice that I can publish these things, and I, I don't expect to make any money off of it or become famous. It's just nice to know that I, I'm out there and I can point to them as a creative person as an accomplishment. Well, you know, that- at the at the very least.
0: Well, that's, you know,
1: and and stuff that I think is good enough for people to read, and maybe I'm wrong, but but it's there. I've, but, I've you know I took the shot. But you're approaching
0: it. You're approaching it the right way, though. You're approaching it as here's something that's creative in me that I need to get out. And if I can't get it out the traditional way, I just need to have it out. Like every year, I do you know videos and podcasting. You write your pieces. You're like, okay, you'd love to. I'm sure you would love to have it be, you know published and at at you know I was going to say borders but there's no borders books anymore you know at 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 romans in pasadena mm-hmm. and I'm sure you would love that but the most important thing for you is you have a creative thing that's part of you and you have to get it out you have to share it not yeah. Yeah. you don't you don't look at this and expect to walk next to John Grisham and go hey hey you and me huh you know we authors we gotta stick together that's not how you look at it and so if you look at it the way you do your publishing the way my buddy guard does his batting stances as here's something creative I have to do and whatever comes about it comes about it but the ending is the creation not the and how many clicks does it get and how many things does it get and I guarantee you you writing something from your heart your guts that has to be extracted from your soul is going to have a much bigger impact than someone calculating what's going to get me the most hits. What's going to get me the most hits, and I and that's why uh, I don't have an ending to the sentence.
1: <laughs> well, I I mean I totally agree with you. I think I think there's a a, a, a serious difference uh, uh, between. Uh, Artful entertainment and and just entertainment and 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 I agree with your stance about what what creativity and what art and what craftsmanship is and it's just unfortunate that in in our creative time in this time uh, the waters have been so muddied. You you mentioned our uh, glorious uh, uh, president and and he was a reality uh, star. Before he became president, and I, like, like reality television is one of those things that's really muddied the waters about what art is and what entertainment is, and uh, it's 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 gotten much harder for people who just want to make something good versus worrying about getting the most eyeballs on it. It's it's gotten that much harder for people to be that kind of artist. Uh, which is a bummer, but I'm glad that you're still out there fighting the good fight and 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 punching and listening to the Rocky theme song and yeah, you know, well simulating I, things.
0: Yeah, I, I love the fo- the podcast format. Again, I don't look at my downloads. I just love the format. And I one of the things I found, like I can talk funny about baseball, but it's tough to do that on stage as a stand-up. Like, ladies and gentlemen, coming to the stage, the baseball guy. Like, hey, how about that Brewer's infield? You know, that's not going to – you're not going to get booked Caroline's (laughs) doing that. Uh, But I can do that with baseball. But also I found that comedians who have their podcasts, the ones who just are not thinking of it as am I going to be the next serial or the next, God forbid, Joe Rogan. But here's just a way for (laughs) me to be funny – and have it not be the format of setup punch setup punch on stage, but interact with people, tell a long form story, do various different things, and you can hear comedians in ways that you would never hear them on stage because on stage you have to have a heightened reality. And so it has. Mm-hmm. There's some comedians who I love listening to in podcasts who I don't necessarily follow as standups, but I'm going. I love listening them talk about that. Or I love hearing their point of view on this particular topic. And, you know, Marina Franklin and Friends Like Us and, and uh, you know, Jimmy Pardo's, you know, Never Not Funny, they, they get people on there who are comics, but they let, they say, Don't, you're not going to do your act here. We're going to talk, we're going to have right. a conversation. And set up a format where you could get to know some of them and hear some of them and hear voices and hear points of view. That you would not normally have, and 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 then not not be overly produced. Unlike this particular episode, where every single word we say had been carefully vetted and carefully rehearsed,
1: <laughs> and we're basically reading
0: off the cue cards at this point. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, it, I, I appreciate that about this particular show that you do. Is is it, it is very structured. Very structured and there isn't room for improvisation and everything that I'm saying now has been scripted for me and I memorized and I figured out what, you know, how to say it and why I might be saying it as an actor does. Um, So that's fun for me in this podcast, but I think you're right. I actually have taken in more, like I soured on stand-up for quite some time um, and uh, just got tired of it. I got tired of watching it. Got wasn't that impressed with all the comics, but the podcasting has definitely re, uh, recharged my love of stand-up comedy and what that is and, and finding uh, new people and uh, to watch. Um, and, and also the fact that there's so many Netflix specials now. A lot, a lot of people make fun of that, uh, but I get to see so many comics that you know because I I, like having a kid I don't get out to nightclubs anymore anyway and obviously we're in a fucking pandemic so I'm not going I'm not I'm not going to movie theaters that are opening in July I'm not I'm not doing these things no so it's nice to have them uh, on my TV and discovering all these uh, uh, great comics and there's and, and it's in when we were doing comedy in in the early 90s or, or I was dabbling in, in stand-up and you obviously went a lot further with it but it like there, there was a, 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 a an embittered element vibe to the scene in New York uh, in the early 90s yeah. uh, a lot of uh, a lot of great comics that you know I still watch and listen to came out of those times and you know I, I saw them at the clubs but there was just just a a certain amount of bitterness and anger that was happening I don't know if that was because it was the the, the comedy boom had kind of tapered off and now everybody was like in these clubs not becoming uh, major movie stars right away maybe that's why they were I don't know what it was I I Uh,
0: have my I have my I have my ideas on this but finish your thoughts I I have someone who witnessed it in the front row I can tell you one of the things that was happening. You, 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 you hit on that a little bit. There was a tremendous boom of stand-up comedy that happened in the 1980s. And then when that died off, there was a lot of people who thought like, okay, I'm next in line to be, have my mad About You, to have my Roseanne, to have my Seinfeld, to have my uh, you know, big, huge, defining show that didn't happen for them. And so they went back to the clubs and basically there was kind of a graduation. Like you, you went to the clubs, you worked your way up to be the headliner. Then when you got to the headliner, you got your big show. Then you went off on your Mork and Mindy trajectory. And then the next group of people was almost like a college. But imagine mm-hmm. the college where the seniors didn't leave. Like the seniors were still seniors. Yes. And mm-hmm. there's, there are fewer clubs a lot of the places shut down and so therefore there are fewer spots and there are more people It's like, hey, I've been doing this for a bunch of years. I deserve this spot or that spot. And they probably have earned that spot, these people would, you know, that, that would have a lot more. They certainly were funnier than me in 1995. And so yeah. there are people like us who are trying to break in and there was, there was no room at the inn. And you had to...
1: Right, that's very true.
0: And so... And I, like, if you could create a Venn diagram of the worst time to start stand-up comedy, that's when I did. That the boom was over, there was no room at the clubs, and the internet was not real yet. And so the idea of being able to build yourself up and get exposure and get work, like, I found, I created, I fit in that perfect slot of everything being awful and trying to get advanced in, in, in stand-up comedy. But yeah, that certainly is what happened. And there's a certain entitlement of, hey, where's why aren't I like Jerry? You know, Because there were so many of those TV shows <laughs> that exploded in the late 80s, early 90s, where it was, here's a show where we're putting this stand-up comic surround them with these casts. Boom, out you go. And some of them were great. I mean, Seinfeld was really great. When Roseanne, Roseanne's peak was really the best years of Roseanne were really really good, you know. Mad about you was yeah. a high really quality show. I mean, all of these shows that were you know quality shows that people, are, hey, why not me? Why, where, where's my show here? Why aren't I not getting this? And and there was fewer comics being seen on Letterman and Leno were were doing having fewer people because we're when Letterman came on. He there was a there was a tidal wave of all the people that he knew at the comedy store, started getting doing lots of appearances on his show, uh, and mm-hmm. you know that just didn't exist, and so no, the, and and you know there was a and that's one of the reasons why like the Lower East Side became so attractive, because it was a place to do comedy. Uh, if I if there were spots available at at Catch a Rising Star or Stand Up New York or or some place like that, or the comedy cellar. I would have been a regular there, but there weren't. So you got to find where there were. I used to do more shows in Boston. I probably would have been a much different person if I moved to Boston. And I knew a couple people who did, who left New York, they mm-hmm. moved to Boston, they became regulars of the Boston scene, and they wound up becoming very successful comics. And there is a parallel universe where because I used to go up to Boston a bunch of times a year, and there was a, and I could do the clubs there. And mm-hmm. I was so stubborn that I had to be a New York comic. I probably should have either gone to Boston or to San Francisco where I had family and be and become big there and then moved back to New York or Los Angeles, but I didn't do that, and that's why I'm the success I am today. <laughs>
1: Um, well yeah I know I know you have to go uh, yep. it's it's uh, It's my show it's show, my
0: show but I, but, but uh, yes yeah, but, I, yeah we're anything but, before we run out of time my producer's give me the wrap it up sign um, what else do you want to say what, what do you think about um, what, uh, toppings on pizza thoughts
1: um i'm a big fan of pizza i love pizza um yeah. i love most of the top there are you know i know people are down on hawaiian pizza like. i'll eat the shit out of a hawaiian pizza i like it you can put anchovies on there i'm good with it you can put uh and i uh, you know the fan it's like when it gets a little too fancy yeah schmancy yeah. then it's then i don't like it but for the most part you know a straight up pie with with Junk on it. I'm I'm down. I'm not.
0: It. I don't like the pineapples because I, mean, I just don't like the taste. I think pineapple is too tangy anyway, especially on pizza for me. Sure. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the green peppers. I love the red peppers, uh, mushrooms. I don't mind the taste of mushrooms. I just don't like the texture of mushrooms, and that's to me. sure sure. Uh, but I love anchovies. Uh, I love onions on my pizza. Uh, mm-hmm. I love uh, the New Haven pizza where they have the clams on it. Are great, uh, and and pick one meat. Could be sausage, could be pep, could be ham. But I don't like to have multiple meats. Mm. I don't know
1: why. Like you, I love, you don't want a meat lover. You don't want a meat lover situation. Look,
0: if that's there, I'm not going to throw it in someone's face. But if or up to me, like I love sausage on my pizza. I love ham on my pizza, and I love pepperoni on my pizza. But I would, I, I prefer to have one. So I can really enjoy that flavor. Because those are different flavors. Sure. Ham flavor, uh, pepperoni, sausage, they're all different flavors. And so I'd like to be able to enjoy that instead of having it be, you know, we are the world, all these faces at you. Like, you, you, when you listen to We Are The World, I don't say, oh, man, I love listening to that because I love Kim Carnes. Like, no, Kim Carnes, is, <laughs> Kim Carnes is lost. And you're going, wait a minute, oh God, there's too many people, and is that Dan Aykroyd? What the hell is happening? And instead... I just like to have the one meat, like ham on pizza. Ham and onion on pizza is actually really, really good. I re- it, sure, yeah. I used to get that at Ben's, Ben by Frank's Pizza, on the corner of uh, mm. of uh, what was it, uh, Thompson and McDougal. Um, yes, and so I, good. I would have. They would say, "What do you want?" And I'd say, "I like ham and onion." And they'd do that. It was great. But when you start, when I think when you mix up the meats. It to me it just it makes it so I, I can't enjoy any of them. You know?
1: It's too much. Right. It's There's just too it's too much flavor. It's too much flavor at once. Yeah, yeah. Mashed together.
0: And and I like each individual flavor, so I don't get to savor any of them. It just seems like a weird it's like when you when someone does a, 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 a mash up of songs and you really get into a song and then they cut to the next song. I'm like wait a minute. Come on, let me listen to a few more bars of that song. Oh, oh great. We're not, now we're cutting to Come Sail Away. I was in the middle of Mr. Roboto <laughs> and you got right to Come Sail Away.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's messed up. I wouldn't want that either. And I would like a, one of those songs on my pizza, but not both.
0: No, you when you when this is from the Sticks Pizzeria. It's run it's run by Tommy <laughs> But Tommy Shaw runs it, and uh, and he's up there, you know, humming "Girls with Guns" as he throws the, the pie in the air. And we say, Tommy, that's your solo career. I say, oh, that's fine. You can order solo on the side. But there you go. Well, hey, Todd, this has been a great pleasure. We've been wanting to get you on the Toddcast for a long time. Uh, I really want to thank you. Where can people find your stuff?
1: Uh you can find me uh, uh, well you can go to toddrobertanderson.com i guess uh, but you can also find me at Twitter uh, at, at @tonslingdog and uh, you can look for me on Facebook i guess if you care about that crap yeah. and uh, and and then you could subscribe to my YouTube influencer channel blursh uh, whenever you want it's always available
0: and of course this you can subscribe to the toncast Uh, on wherever you get your podcasts. I also host the Locked On MLB podcast, which I do my daily baseball talk even when there's no season. I also do the Bull Durham Minute podcast, a movie-by-minute podcast show where we break down the movie Bull Durham one minute at a time, and the rest of my stuff you can find on Pornhub. But uh, thank you so (laughs) much for being a guest on the show. And for those of you who are wondering what's happening next... Uh, Some of the people who I work with at Pornhub who are very, very much into the stepson, naughty stepmom series that I've produced and obviously have starred in both roles at some time are going to be on. And we're going to be discussing about social norms of walking in while your stepson is doing their math homework and got a little excited because it's laundry day. So everyone else... (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the TonCast. As always, I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me whatever you feel comfortable calling me.